When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're going to talk about one of Christianity's earliest martyrs and the Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp. Polycarp was a 2nd century church father. He is the link between the apostolic age and now going into the patristic age. A lot of times when we talk about church fathers or even reformers, we can get really hung up on their doctrine and their contribution to the theology that we forget to view them as people. We kind of reduce them to a purely academic setting, and I think you really lose something there. So in this episode, we're going to cover a little bit about what was going on on the doctrinal front, but I really want to focus more on how Rome viewed Christians at the time and who Polycarp was, what he was like, as much as we can know, and his impact on the early church. And when we think about Rome and the early church, we picture an ongoing constant persecution, and that wasn't necessarily true at all times. It really varied by emperor and by province. So the emperor could be really chill about Christians, but some of the people or the rulers of a particular province could have a real problem with them. So you would have a localized regional persecution that was not necessarily empire-wide persecution. For the first 30 years after Christ's ascension, the biggest persecutors of Christians were the Jews. The Romans considered Christianity to be another sect of Judaism, so they didn't really have any interest in it at first. But as soon as it became a bit more well-known and was realized as a separate religion that held Christ as king, they began to think of Christians as shady at best and treasonous at worst. Romans were also very extrinsic in their worship. You had the idols, priests, altars, rites, and practices, which were very visible. Christians didn't do any of that. Their worship was spiritual and internal, not showy and flashy. And this might be a little bit surprising for us today because it definitely doesn't hold the same interpretation for us. But Romans called Christians atheists because they did not worship a pantheon of gods like the Romans did and instead worship someone that the Romans considered to be a mere man, not a deity. So they considered the Christians to be atheistic. The Roman government acknowledged the emperor as the highest god and demanded that all religions include worship of him. As long as the religions included worship of the emperor, they could practice their own particular rites, whatever they, they wanted. They didn't really care. But Christians refused to acknowledge any king but Christ and would not offer any sacrifice to Caesar, so they were considered disloyal to the state. But in actuality, as we see in Romans 13 and through their actions, Christians were actually very loyal to the state. But they were nonconformists, they didn't look like everybody else, and they didn't act like everyone else, and so that drew a lot of negative attention to them. And there was also an economic element involved as well. Anyone who had made money off of the Roman deity worship stood to lose a great deal of profit or even have to close shop when Christianity spread. Pliny the Younger, while he was a governor of a province in Asia Minor, wrote to Emperor Trajan that the contagion of this superstition had spread into the villages and rural areas, as well as the larger cities, to such an extent that the temples had been almost deserted and the sellers of sacrificial animals impoverished. And we can actually see that playing out in Paul's missionary journeys. Many of the idol makers were afraid of becoming destitute, so they complained about Paul and tried to get him dealt with. Christians were also blamed for any calamities that befell Rome, like earthquakes or famines because it was seen as a punishment for forsaking the gods. And that works really well for Nero, who uses Christians as scapegoats after the burning of Rome in 64 AD. 
They were rounded up in droves, and some were sewn into the skins of wild animals and given to big dogs who tore them to pieces. Others were tied to mad bulls and dragged to death. Others were used as human candles to light Nero's gardens at night. He would burn them alive after dark and invite others to come and watch. After Nero's death, persecution slowed to a crawl, and the church was able to rebuild and really flourish. Skipping ahead a bit, we have Emperor Trajan, who ruled for 20 years in the very beginning of the 2nd century. And I mentioned Pliny the Younger earlier. He wrote to Trajan about what to do with the Christians, and the two dialogued back and forth about it, and this is the policy they came up with. When someone informed upon a Christian, he brought the Christian before his tribunal and asked him if he were a Christian. If he still admitted the charge of the three such questions, he was sentenced to death. In his answer, Trajan assured Pliny that he was following the correct procedure. No Christians were to be sought out, but if someone reported that a certain individual was a Christian, that Christian was to be punished unless he recanted and worshipped the gods of the Romans. And this became the official procedure, and the governors throughout the empire followed the rules and principles that Trajan had approved. This decree was followed for the next two emperors until the reign of Marcus Aurelius in the very late 2nd century. Most of the persecution that occurred before Marcus Aurelius was due to violent mobs and was not condoned by the emperor. And so now we have this background information on what was going on politically and culturally, so let's actually dive into Polycarp himself. At the top of the episode, I mentioned that Polycarp is the link between the apostolic and patristic ages. He was a disciple of the Apostle John, which is, how cool would that be? He walked with many of the same people who had walked with Jesus. And Polycarp was born around 69 AD, about 30 years after Christ's ascension, and right after Nero died. So he would have grown up in the most prosperous time for the early church. Specifically, he was the Bishop of Smyrna and was specially appointed by John himself. And if you remember our Asa Jennings episode, Smyrna is now present-day Izmir, where Asa led the evacuation of the refugees during the Armenian Genocide. Polycarp in many ways reflected John and his character. He was gentle and noble, but he also stood very firm against heresy. Two of the biggest foes for the early church were Gnosticism and Marcionism, which is very similar to Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the idea that there is this secret knowledge you can find out if you seek it out. The God of the Old Testament is seen as lesser compared with the supreme being. Emphasis was placed on scripture and orthodoxy, but on enlightenment. They also didn't believe in sin and repentance. Marcionism was very similar in that they thought Jesus was the Savior sent by God, and Paul was his apostle, but they rejected the Hebrew Bible and the God of the Old Testament as being a lesser evil deity, whereas the God of the New Testament was seen as all-loving. A lot of the early church fathers spent a great deal of time establishing apostolic authority, establishing orthodoxy, and fighting heresy. Irenaeus, another famous early church father who as a young man had heard Polycarp preach, described him as a man who was of much greater weight and a more steadfast witness of truth than Marcion and the rest of the heretics. Irenaeus also stated that on Polycarp's visit to Rome, his testimony converted many of the disciples of Marcion. A lot of what we know about the martyrdom of Polycarp comes from a manuscript written about five years after his death called aptly, The Martyrdom of Polycarp. And it's a very interesting read. Aside from its obvious telling of Polycarp's death, it also establishes the right way to be a martyr, which sounds strange, but it contrasts two different Christians. The first was sought out by the Romans and went willingly with his captors and was destroyed by wild beasts. The other wanted martyrdom, seeking it out and taking a few others with him. He went before the proconsul. When he got there, he became terrified of the wild beast and instead sacrificed the Roman gods and became apostate. The author then basically closes this segment saying that we should not volunteer for martyrdom because we are not commanded to do so in the Gospels. We don't really know why Polycarp was arrested. It seems that the mob was incited against him and in order to appease the mob, Roman officials went out to arrest him. At first, he wanted to go willingly, but his disciples begged and pleaded with him to flee, so he did. He goes off to a farm in the country, where he prays continually for the churches and Christians around the world, which was his custom. 
And while he's there at the farm, he has a vision of his death three days before he's arrested and states to those who are with him, I must be burned alive. He hides out in another farm, but the Romans took two of the slaves from the previous farm and tortured them until one of them reveals where Polycarp is hiding. And he could have kept moving, but he tells his disciples that he's done. He's going to go. So when the Romans get there, armed to the teeth, they find this old man who invites them in for food. He asks them to give him time to pray before they take him, and they let him. And I like this little bit here because it gives you a good insight into his character. He knows he's going to die a horrible death. But when he sees these Romans who have been chasing him a while, they're tired and hungry, he invites them in and lets them rest. When he's ready to go, they actually feel bad about taking him because he's just an old man. When Polycarp arrives at court, he's placed at the center of a semicircle amphitheater. So in front of him is the proconsul with the Romans seated behind him and the rest of the court. Behind Polycarp are a group of Christians. They ask him if he is Polycarp. He says that he is. The proconsul then attempts to reason with him by saying, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the atheists. Polycarp stares straight ahead and waves his hand across the proconsul in the audience and says, Away with the atheists. And I would love to see this moment, this old man so bold in the face of death. And I want to read this next bit directly from the manuscript because it's just so good. But when the magistrate pressed him hard and said, Swear the oath and I will release you, revile the Christ, Polycarp said, Eighty-six years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But again the magistrate persisted, saying, Swear by the genius of Caesar. Polycarp answered, If you suppose vainly that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as you say and feign that you are ignorant of who I am, hear you plainly, I am a Christian. But if you would learn the doctrine of Christianity, assign a day and give me a hearing. Then the proconsul said, I have wild beasts here and I will throw you to them except you repent. But Polycarp said, Call for them, for the repentance from better to worse is a change not permitted to us. But it is a noble thing to change from that which is improper to righteousness. Then the proconsul said to him again, If you despise the wild beasts, I will cause you to be consumed by fire unless you repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten that fire which burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. For you are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come do what you will. Now this part is not in the manuscript, so I'll add it myself. Polycarp is a really cool guy. This is a this is this is an amazing just this entire scene here just plays out like an epic movie moment. Like this is the climax of the movie. This is where we've been building, and here we are. At the moment we've all been waiting for Polycarp standing defiantly before the proconsul, proclaiming the name of Christ in the face of certain death. So they take him out to the stake and are about to nail his hands, and he asks them not to, saying that God will give them the fortitude to withstand the heat, so they merely bind his hands behind him as he stares ahead. Now according to the manuscript, his body would not burn, instead the fire enveloped him, and the smell, not a burning flesh but a baked bread and spices, fills the air. The Romans realized he wouldn't burn, and they stabbed him in the heart, killing him. A vast quantity of blood came forth, so much so that it extinguished the fire. And that is according to the manuscript. Polycarp's death is recorded as February 23rd, 155. His body was burned again, and his bones were collected by his church to be buried. He was the last known connection to the apostles, and so with his death, the church moved firmly into the patristic age. Polycarp is such an inspiring guy. Like, I think we all have lists of people we want to meet in heaven one day, and Polycarp is definitely on that list for me. 
And as we continue on with this podcast, that list just keeps growing. I would love to hear some of the people on your list. So feel free to reach out and let me know. I want to hear. I like this kind of stuff. Like, who are your heroes of the faith? And if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you tell a friend, the cashier, that person next to you in line, and whomever else you meet. As always, thanks for listening to Mars and Missionaries. I'm Elise. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.